What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate ideas of popular storytelling filtered through the lens of history, mythology, philosophy, and our popular culture. I am very excited to be here back for another Midnight Myth episode. We are literally days away from Rise of Skywalker, episode nine of Star Wars. If you've been listening to the previous episodes, you realize that Laurel and I have been incredibly excited and we have been re-watching the original trilogy and discussing the symbolic language of Star Wars. We're going to do that again with everybody's favorite third installment, Return of the Jedi. Yes, uh, super exciting uh, for us to come back and do this close out to this short series on Star Wars original trilogy uh, especially because for the two of us, Jedi holds a very, very special place. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun to discuss this one tonight. There is so much uh, in this movie to unpack, so many heartfelt scenes, so many cute teddy bear-like creatures. Uh, just a really, really fun movie to dissect. Yeah, we're not going to reinvent the wheel on this one, folks. We're going to do pretty much what we did in our other two Star Wars episodes. We're just going to talk about some symbols of the movie, analyze and discuss them, and hopefully you all enjoy it. We will most likely be talking Rise of Skywalker as soon as we see it. Fun fact, we have bought tickets twice already, so we're going opening day and opening weekend, so we'll have a lot to say about it, I'm sure. Anyway, before we uh, roll up our sleeves and get too busy with all things Star Wars, Laurel, do the spiel. Here it comes. If you wanted to get in touch with us, give us feedback, let us know what episodes you want to hear in the future, anything like that, the best place to do so is on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or elsewhere on social media at Midnight Myth Podcast. That's Instagram and Facebook for you. Uh, Definitely check us out and let us know what you think of the pod or just anything that you want to share with us. You can also visit our website, midnightmyth.com where there are blogs, there's extra content there. You can also drop us a line through our contact form or sign up for our email list, and we'll give you updates uh, just about once a month or so if you join that email list. Um, Other than that, we are running a sale in our merch store right now through the holidays, uh, and that's a free shipping promotion. So if you head over to our merch store, which you can access through our website, uh, anything in the store you can get free shipping on if you use the discount code HOLLY at checkout, H-O-L-L-Y. So definitely make sure you head to our merch store. That's going to run through January 1st, though, so you can still get free shipping all the way through the holidays. Um, Other than that, uh, you could support us on Patreon, which is a great way to help us out, cover some of our costs, help us break even on the podcast, which we do for free. Uh, And that you can access through our website as well. It's a wonderful platform where you can pledge uh, just a couple of bucks a month to support us, and you'll get perks in return. So definitely check out our Patreon. Yeah, and make sure wherever you're listening, give us that five-star rating or review. That is awesome, and it really helps our podcast get out there. Absolutely, especially on Apple Podcasts. On with the show. Let's yeah. let's do a briefest of briefest of recaps. We've all seen it, so spoiler wall, if you haven't seen Return of the Jedi, 
But honestly, everybody's seen this movie. It's the third installment of the original Star Wars trilogy, featuring our our heroes, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Lando Calrissian, and the like. The movie starts with C-3PO and R2-D2 back on the planet of Tatooine. Um, They are presented to the ruthless gangster slash overlord Jabba the Hutt as a gift, and Luke has proclaimed that he is a Jedi Knight and would like to bargain for Han Solo's life, who is frozen in carbonite. Um, Chewbacca is sold as a bounty, but secretly the bounty hunter is Leia, and she unfreezes Han Solo, and just in time for Luke to come and fight the evil monster, the Rancor. Flash forward, they blow up Jabba, they escape. Luke heads back to uh, Dagobah, where Yoda confirms that, yes, Darth Vader is his father, and he will only be a Jedi if he confronts, defeats, and kills Darth Vader. He has a nice little chat with uh, Obi-Wan, where Luke, using the Force, realizes that Leia is his long-lost twin sister. They then go to attack the Death Star by sneaking on to the forest moon of Endor, where we get a great speeder bike chase scene, and we encounter these furry and adorable little teddy bears called the Ewoks, who help overthrow the Empire, destroy the shield generator. Lando Calrissian leads a fleet um, in the Millennium Falcon to blow up the Death Star. Meanwhile, the Emperor and Darth Vader are trying to turn Luke Skywalker who refuses to join the dark side and in doing so redeems his father who kills the emperor. And then there's a great party with the Ewoks having destroyed the empire for good. Woohoo. We've won. And now peace will reign in the galaxy forever and ever. And it will never once again crumble into fascism ever. No, no. The fascism actually comes back pretty much instantaneously. You missed out one big detail in there, which was Yoda's death. Oh yeah, Yoda you didn't dies. Mention Yoda becomes one with the Force, yeah. and then of course at the end, after uh, all of this hullabaloo at the party uh, on Endor, we see the Force ghosts of Obi Wan Kenobi, Yoda, and Anakin Skywalker. So very, very great recap there. Um, I love this movie. I love it so, so much. Um, I, I think we've said this before, but. Uh, I think you and I are both in agreement that even if we acknowledge that it's not the absolute best of the original trilogy. This is my favorite Star Wars movie. Uh, It's one that's just meant a lot to me since I was a kid. It appealed to me a lot as a kid, and I think that was very intentional with the Ewoks especially. But from start to finish, I love Luke becoming a Jedi. I love him doubling down on the light side of the Force. I love the redemption of Darth Vader. I love the forest moon of Endor. I love Leia, you know, taking charge in this situation. I, I, I just love it. It, it makes me so happy. Well, I was going to ask, do you think it holds up? But you already answered that question, I think. And I certainly think there are, uh, there are aspects of it that, uh, you know, I watch it today and I'm like, I, there's no way it holds a candle to the sort of emotional depth of Empire and like the performances are not quite as good as Empire, but I still uh, just feel so much warmth and love for this movie. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, it's always been my favorite of the original trilogies. I agree that um, Empire is quote-unquote better movie. Um, if I were to rank in terms of, you know, some of the more tangible metrics like acting, like script, lighting, Empire really is a phenomenal film. Um, whereas Return of the Jedi is just a kick-ass adventure. But right from the beginning, you get these incredibly cool uh, monsters at Jabba's palace, and it's just a rock and roll adventure from the start. Luke with a lightsaber, the everything in it. Boba Fett getting punked by a by the half, Sarlacc by a half-blind Han Solo. Yeah. I mean, it's just a fantastic, fun, exciting adventure. And I think there's some interesting analysis in terms of the symbolic language. Um, I would like to start with the Ewoks. Is that cool? That'd be great, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Ewoks. Tell me, what do you think is the deal? Why Ewoks? Do the Ewoks hold up? Do they mean something? Or are they just cute little teddy bears to sell toys? Well, the most important thing that we recognize right off the bat is uh, they're the natives of this forest moon of Endor, and they are a tribal society. Uh, They have sort of rudimentary weapons. 
uh, and they have uh, a sort of connection to nature in the ground. They have a natural um, camouflage about them, so they are able to sneak around, uh, catch our our friends, our heroes in traps. Um, but they also have a healthy amount of fear when they encounter someone like Princess Leia and are not sure if she's going to harm them or not. So uh, kind of an interesting uh, obstacle for our heroes to encounter because, and you mentioned this in our Empire episode, um, the the rebellion has always been a a more naturalistic, pluralistic society versus the cold, sterile uh, empire. All white male. Yeah, and this is the opportunity for our heroes, the rebellion, to uh, get in good with nature. And it takes them some time, it takes them some effort, but it happens. And so I think it's sort of interesting to watch them uh, become initiated into this tribe. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is a little froggy. One thing that I thought, watching the Ewoks now from a contemporary 2019 lens, um, that kind of rang out to me is during the late Middle Ages, as um, Europeans were sailing across the world and establishing empires, they encountered lots of different peoples. In particular, in the the Native Americans that were found in you know the Aztec Aztec society and the Native American tribes of North America, as well as Sub-Saharan African tribes, and there emerged a stereotype stereotype called the noble savage, and the noble savage is um, meant in the time to be a praise, but it's also a kind of condescending praise. It's saying, hey. There are these people who are savages compared to us modern Europeans, but there's an air of nobility to them. And it's usually associated with marital prowess. Hey, we wanted to go conquer this place and they put up a fight and they didn't have muskets. They didn't have cannons. They didn't ride horses, but man, they put up a fight. Those are the noble savages. And that became a archetype used in predominantly literature. um, And it kind of gained steamed in the early 20th century with the cowboy narratives, with the cowboys versus the Indians, the lawmen versus the savages who had an air of nobility to them. And I feel that the Ewoks are drawing upon that stereotype. We see a few things that indicate savagery. They see a droid and they worship it as a god. They try to cook people alive and eat them, right? Uh, well, one of them sees Princess Leia take off a hat and it, it assumes that it's a magical weapon and is scared. So you see this like total savagery. But once they, our heroes are initiated into the tribe, we see a great nobility. You see the Ewoks willing to lay down their lives for these foreign aliens who have come to their planet and invaded it. And they're willing to fight these incredibly technological monstrosities like the speeder bikes, the ATST walkers, stormtroopers with laser cannons in full battle armor. They're willing to take them on with clubs and arrows and are, in fact, they turn the tide of the Battle of Endor towards the rebels. And so I think that they're drawing upon this stereotype. And it's important to remember that that stereotype came out of blood and conquest. It came out of creating empires and taking land from noble for um, native peoples and repurposing it into European massive empires. And I find it interesting that we have the Ewoks fighting an empire, you know, using a stereotype that was created from our own empire. And I don't think it's a necessarily intentional. I don't think George Lucas was like, you know, I read about these noble savages. Let's make the Ewoks the noble savages. But I think that there's such a tradition of it that that archetype rings through. And to a certain extent, as much as I love the Ewoks, I wonder if it's problematic. I'm glad you brought it up because I do think that it kind of suffuses the uh, the tension between the uh, the tribal Ewoks and the quote-unquote civilized uh, characters of the Rebellion, who to a certain extent, come from a, a kind of privilege, especially Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is an interesting contrast being shown there, and uh, watching the Ewoks kind of soften on them and welcome them into the tribe, even though, like you said, they have 
uh, invaded this planet and they've been blowing up speeder bikes throughout the forest, which presumably the Ewoks rely on for housing and food. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, um, uh, and, and, uh, sort of murky mess that is created with the Ewoks because that it is drawing on this kind of fetishistic stereotype, um, that maybe had like somewhat good intentions, but is actually probably more harmful than it is helpful. Well, it's an important reminder that these in stereotypes that came out of this period of time were all fundamentally about establishing European white hegemony over others. Inside those stereotypes, when you unpack them, they ultimately say, we, the Europeans, are the superior ones. We right, have yeah. a right to conquer everyone else. And then they put up a fight. That's a good noble savage. Right. It's almost like the movie Dances with Wolves, which is a really good movie, but it is also deeply problematic in that here comes this cowboy who gets over-romanticizes this noble savage and ends up joining the tribe. And there's there's an air of that in the Ewoks. And as much as, yes, they make great toys, you know, for all of my nieces and nephews, I got them all plush Ewoks when they were born. To be like, welcome to Earth, here's an Ewok, you know? And I adore the Ewoks tremendously. I wonder to what extent that stereotype, echoing through to a galaxy far, far away, uh, how much work needs to still be done uncoupling and learning from our own imperial past, that we, we use this stereotype as the noble savage to help fight the evil empire, well, who's the evil empire? Well, shit, that's me, right? That's us. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, the Americans. You know, we are the outgrowth of that evil empires of our of our history. Yeah, no, that's it's it's very muddy. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. It's really an interesting conversation to have. And you know, other cool things that the Ewoks, like you mentioned, that they they definitely symbolically represent the pluralistic and naturalistic approach of the rebellion. The uh Imperials can't even be bothered with them. They just build their, you know, space station um, in the orbit of the moon and they have the shield generating from there and they could care less about these savages. They look down on them. But our heroes get to know them, they get acquainted with them, and they turn out to be the allies that they need. Otherwise, it's not a successful attack and the shield never goes down and the Death Star never blows up and the Empire reigns for a thousand years. Absolutely. And it plays on... Uh, this theme that has resounded through uh, through the original trilogy, and I think through all of Star Wars, uh, that the underdog uh, should not be underestimated. And in the first movie, in A New Hope, that's you know that one X-wing can get into the middle of this giant space station that could destroy a planet, deliver one blow to an exhaust port, and you can take the whole thing down. That a small tactical group uh, that has purpose can take down an empire. And that happens again in this movie to a different extent where, uh, the empire has taken over a part of this moon, uh, taken the space of this tribe and underestimated them because they're teddy bears, but it turns out they're fierce little baddies and they can, they can fight back. Uh, so it, it just once again shows, uh, what happens when you underestimate a force that has a purpose. Absolutely. And I think the Ewoks also are instrumental in showing the growth of Luke Skywalker's character because the Ewoks show up, Han wants to shoot him and Luke's like, nope, give him your weapons. Everything will be okay. You know, and Leia is there and Luke uses the force to help sway the Ewoks to their side and makes them allies because at any time Luke can just summon his lightsaber and cut them all down. Right. But that's what a Vader would do. Right. That's what the dark side would do. We get to see the light side emanating from Luke where he's like, nope, we're just going to go along. Trust me, everything will be okay. Tell them 3PO that you'll use their magic. And he uses the force to levitate 3PO in one of the best scenes in the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because because a Jedi uses the force for knowledge and defense and sometimes some party magic and some hijinks <laughs> and shenanigans. That's how you do it. Never for attack. Let's flesh out. I think I'd like to transition. The next place I'd like to go, if you'll permit me. Yeah. Let's talk about the Jedi. What does it mean to be a Jedi? 
if this is this movie was originally called Revenge of the Jedi and George Lucas thought about it and he switched it to Return of the Jedi, realizing that a Jedi, a true Jedi, doesn't ever seek vengeance. We have seen the outline of the Jedi philosophy through Yoda. We talked about it extensively in our Empire Strikes Back podcast. Now we're seeing it in action. Tell me, Laurel, what does it mean to be a Jedi? Well, I love that you mentioned uh, the change in the title because last week we talked about how Luke Skywalker, through the end of The Empire Strikes Back, embodies uh, the great character of English literature, Hamlet, uh, who is a character driven by revenge and by personal vendetta. Uh, But to become a Jedi, Luke has to let that go. Uh, and Luke has to access something that is uh, that transcends revenge, that is uh, tapped into the light side of the force that surrounds us and that binds us. I think the uh, the beginning of this movie is interesting in that uh, it returns us to two familiar locations before taking us to a new one. So we go to Tatooine, which is where we started this entire adventure, which is where a young moisture farmer looked into the horizon and said... I want something bigger. I want to go on an adventure. And Luke, in this sequence, in this sequence at Jabba's Palace and then on the barge, has to, uh, has to access the training that he got in the first movie. So he has to pull out a lightsaber and do some tricks and fight and do that thing that he first associated with Jedi, which is martial prowess. And then we visit Dagobah, which is where we spent a great portion of The Empire Strikes Back, and we have to revisit Yoda and once again access the other part of the training, the training that we got at Empire Strikes Back that doesn't have to do with martial prowess, but has much more to do with philosophy, with uh, meditation, with Zen, with uh, the, the loftier ideals of being a Jedi. I think this is really interesting because of the parallels that it has to real-life knighthood. The Jedi are called knights. They are an order of knights. Uh, and real-life knighthood, uh, while it began as you know this servile security position, that uh, it came around around the year 1000 with the establishment of castles. So for the first time, you had people trying to guard these castles year-round, and they had to hire a security force. So we had these men were armed and fought on horseback, and that's all being a knight was, a chevalier, one who rides a horse and fights really well. But over time, as we were trying to rein in the sort of uh, wild and unruly violence of these people who were literally armed all the time and could attack peasants uh, and kill each other whenever they wanted to, uh, the, the culture around that changed to establish these higher ideals that they would aspire to, uh, which eventually became this code of chivalry, that you had to be good to women, that you had to not kill peasants, you had to not kill each other, and that you had to aspire to be a more noble uh, fighter than just someone who swings a sword and rides a horse. And that's something that Luke is learning too. Luke is learning to combine uh, really skilled fighting with a lightsaber being able to battle anyone with being able to access this much higher ideal of uh, the light side of the force, of balance and harmony with all other creatures and beings in the galaxy. I, I love where you're going here. There is a part of the Jedi that is a warrior, undoubtedly, and that part is the Jedi Knight. And we do see that in full force. But it's important to note When Luke enters the movie and goes to Jabba's palace, he offers to bargain for Han Solo's life first. He he waits for Jabba to make a move against him violently before he acts. He says, listen, here's the deal. You got my friend. We can either work out an arrangement in which you'll profit, or this is going to lead to us fighting in which I'm a Jedi, you'll die. You have to make the choice here. I'm either going to end up having you killed or we can do a bargain, it's up to you. And Jabba chooses the bargain. I'm sorry, Jabba chooses the violence, says no to the bargain, in which case you could argue that entire sequence where Luke destroys the barge is a defensive action. 
Absolutely, absolutely. But he has to fight. Uh, so he is he's learning to combine these two seemingly uh, contradictory uh, aspects of the Jedi. It seems like being a really good fighter who can swing a laser sword and being, uh, you know, a Yoda in a swamp who's constantly concentrating on the vibration of the Force, those seem incompatible, but they have to be made compatible to become a Jedi. And that's what knighthood became in the High Middle Ages in our world. So I think it's kind of an interesting parallel to this real-world contradiction that was expected of people that was extremely difficult uh, and that's why there are all of these romances written about these characters, because you have to be a true hero who's able to uh, reconcile these irreconcilable differences. Um, one thing that I love about this movie that kind of wraps up the trilogy for me is how much it's concerned with ritual uh, and how much it meditates on the presence and or absence of those rituals or the formation or formalization of ritual. We're looking at a world that's in decay. We're looking at a world that has crumbled. The Jedi Order is gone. We know that they were once thriving and there were thousands of them throughout the galaxy and now there's one. And he has to build a new world and a new Jedi Order from that. He is the last of the Jedi. Um, and what's conspicuously missing from his becoming a Jedi is a ritual, is a ceremony. Uh, real life nights participated in the dubbing ceremony where you would have the sword placed on your shoulder and a king or another knight, someone powerful, would help you cross that threshold. It was very much a coming-of-age ceremony. And part of the reason that knighthood became synonymous with nobility uh, was that those ceremonies became so lavish and so expensive over time that most people couldn't afford them. Even nobles couldn't afford them. So you had to have the highest order, highest caliber of person who was able to pay for that kind of ceremony. It was so important to becoming a knight to go through that very particular ritual. And Luke doesn't get that. Presumably, you know, we don't know during the original trilogy, what the Jedi was like, because there's none left. But presumably, there's some kind of ceremony to making you a Jedi. You have to train formally, and then you have to be selected, and then you have to be named or uh, dubbed somewhat. But Luke has to do it on his own. He has to uh, declare himself a Jedi by uh, creating his own threshold to walk over. And he does that by confronting Vader, but doing it in a different way than he feels like he was destined to do. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Interesting. You know, one thing that I meditate on this movie in the same sort of vein that you're in, Yoda tells Luke Skywalker... Once you go down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. And in that, we say that if you start towards the dark side, you will get dark side momentum, essentially, and you will become part of the dark side of the force. And there's no turning around. Once you're on that path, that's your path in it's now your destiny. And destiny is a word that's thrown around a lot in this movie, and what we actually see, and what I would argue is that destiny means that the outcome of an event is predetermined. It means that you have a future and you are destined for it. And no matter what you do, you will get to that future. Are you going to be a dark side or a light side? It's predestined. So Yoda warns him, once you go down the dark side, forever will it dominate your destiny. The Emperor and Vader argue, Luke, it's your destiny to rule the galaxy with us. You will become a dark Jedi or a dark Lord of the Sith, just like us. And we really don't, that, that 
that warning, once you go down the dark side, forever will it dominate your destiny, is wrong. These, these outcomes are not predetermined. People have the capacity to choose. We see Luke very tempted by the dark side when he is being confronted by the Emperor and Vader. And in fact, when Vader evokes the name of his sister, Luke lashes out in anger, right? And he uses his rage and his anger to defeat Darth Vader and get vengeance for Darth Vader having chopped off his hand. He lobs off Vader's hand, which is absolutely a symbolic castration. And we're seeing a character work out in a movie a deep Oedipal complex, the desire to destroy the father, take the father's place, and dominate the galaxy. And Luke goes down the dark path and defeats his father and confronts him and destroys Darth Vader. And Darth Vader is just on the ground and Luke just has to move his lightsaber and his journey to the dark side will be complete. What does he do? He sheaths his sword and says, no, I've tasted the dark side and I am not going to become like my father. I am not going to succumb to this deep psychological Oedipal complex that he is suffering from. I have the capacity to choose. I tasted the dark side and I choose the light. And by doing that, he is able to redeem his father yeah. and his father, the biggest, baddest motherfucker in the galaxy, the villain of all cinema, the greatest villain ever constructed in cinema is Darth Vader, and he is redeemed by the love of his son. And there's nothing more beautiful than that that I've ever seen. It's the best way to end this trilogy. One thing that I also meditated on thinking about this, one, people have the capacity to choose. There is no predetermined destiny. And once you, you can dip your toe into the dark side, in fact, I'd argue if you're going to be a healthy and complete person, you have to dip your toe into the dark side. You have to somewhat veer off the path because if you don't veer off the path, you didn't choose the correct one. Right. It was just destiny and that's all it was. Luke has to choose. And you know, another thing that I realized watching this movie, the events of Lando and Han Solo attacking the Death Star happen independently of Luke confronting Vader and the Emperor. In other words, if Luke does turn to the dark side, it doesn't matter. They're going to blow up the Death Star. They're all going to die, right? So whether or not Luke does or doesn't turn has zero impact on whether or not the Death Star does or doesn't get destroyed, right? So in this way, the victory of Luke becoming a Jedi is completely internalized. It's purely Luke's victory, it's Luke's, Luke having the ability to uh, redeem his father and by doing so become a Jedi is just a psychic victory for Luke and not a substantive military victory. So after Luke having shown this great military prowess in the first two movies, having shown him become a badass Jedi Knight, in the end, what, what does he really need to become a hero? a whole and complete person by overcoming the demons that the father has laid upon his feet and being able to look at his father and say, father, please, I love you. You know, and that is what makes him a Jedi. That's so well said. So yeah, contrast uh, the journey in a new hope where Luke is actually the guy pulling the trigger. Luke is in the X wing and he blows up the death star. This movie, he does not blow up the death star. It is a repetition of the same journey, but within, you know, instead of an external journey. And we have another Death Star. We have a symbolic repetition of that journey that he had in the first one, which was much more traditional, much more uh, following Joseph Campbell's steps uh, on a literal, like tangible sense. And then in this movie, he sort of does the same, but goes inward and has to symbolically hit all of those steps on the journey. The most important one being the atonement with the father. So where there was this, uh, this ogre figure in the father, this devouring Kronos, uh, now 
there is just dad. You know, there's Anakin Skywalker inside the mask of Darth Vader. And you have to let go of ego in order to see that person and tell them that you forgive them. Um, I love that this movie says no one is beyond saving. Even Darth fucking Vader is not beyond saving. That is a really powerful and brave thing for this movie to say. And to kind of come back to ritual, uh, the last moments of Darth Vader's life, of Anakin Skywalker's life, are very reminiscent of last rites or uh, of last confession. He dies in the arms of his son and is redeemed just before he becomes one with the Force. And he's allowed to become one with the Force like Obi-Wan, like Yoda before him, because even in these last moments, after a lifetime of crime and sin, he's able to say, I confess and I'm sorry. Uh, Luke says, I have to save you. And Anakin says, you already have. Like, I, I, I always tear up. It's so, so beautiful. Uh, but we get this uh, very private but very significant ritual between them that creates this contract that allows this character to become Anakin Skywalker again. It resurrects him before he dies. Yep. Luke is able to return home in the beginning of this movie, enter in a literal den of monsters and villainy, and he is able to conquer the Rancor. And if the Rancor is discord, it's disharmony, it's raw violence, it's the id of Luke Skywalker manifest, it's all of your bad dreams are alive. And sometimes you do have to wield a lightsaber and rip through those monsters to come out at the other end. But for Luke to really become a true Jedi... He has to descend into yet another dark cave of the Death Star. And there he has to see eye to eye for the first time his father. And he has to forgive him in order to move forward. And it is, it is the way that Star Wars had to end. There's no other way that it could have done. Vader had to be redeemed because everyone can be redeemed. You know, that doesn't mean forgiven. Vader's crimes aren't washed away right? because he saves Luke's life. So he still is and did horrible, terrible things to the galaxy and killed people with impunity. But at the end, he was able to do one good act, and that good act does allow him to have a good death. Yes, and uh, there's a funeral uh, the very significant scene of Luke privately burning the uh, armor of Darth Vader, uh, I, I think is just a very interesting moment. It's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful visual. Um, and it evokes like a Viking funeral, sending out your, your dead to sea on fire or many cultures that practiced uh, cremation instead of burial. But uh, Wikipedia, the Star Wars, the official Star Wars wiki has confirmed Anakin became one with the Force. So it's an empty suit that he's burning. So uh, different from a, a funeral here on Earth where we bury our dead or where we, uh, we honor the body, we honor the dead body. This is a world where the body is temporary. Very much um, calling on those Buddhist ideals that you mentioned in Empire the body dissolves, becomes one with the force, and so the one thing that's being burned here is the identity of Darth Vader. This is Luke's victory over the dark side uh, and his uh, honoring of the spirit of Anakin Skywalker. Just a really interesting image to pull in uh, this kind of Viking funeral here. You know, and Yoda says in order for Luke to become a Jedi, he must confront Vader. And Luke takes that to mean that he must kill him. And even Obi-Wan says to him, you know, you have to kill Vader. And, you know, Vader actually killed your father. The good man that I knew ceased to be. So what I said was true from a certain point of view. Yeah. You know, and he's more machine now than man. And in this, we see a subjective quality to the teachings of the Jedi. And that by subjective, meaning that where you sit and how you perceive the Force will have a strong hand on the type of Jedi you will be. In fact, it's not a strict dogma. You know, it's a loose and more fluid religion. 
And because of that, Luke says, I can't do it. I can't kill my father. But he does, right? He kills and burns the body of Vader. But in so, he allows Anakin Skywalker to be reborn. Yeah. In that, Anakin gets to come back. Vader does get destroyed. Because if Obi-Wan's right, and Vader is a different person than Anakin... When Anakin returns, Vader is dead, and hence you must burn the body. Yeah, and then there's also the sort of symbolism of the phoenix rising from the ashes, too. So to tie that to fire and then see the force ghost of Anakin Skywalker is interesting there. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about that from a certain point of view moment because it feels very much like a metaphor for what we're trying to do with Star Wars right now uh, because... Obi-Wan admits that, yes, he did technically tell Luke a lie, uh, but what he told him was true from a certain point of view. What that point of view is, is symbolism. And he tried to tell the truth by equivocating uh, and by giving Luke the essence and the symbol of what truly happened. Uh, Joseph Campbell talks about this in uh, how he reads myth, how we read myth. Uh, these are stories that try to tell us the truth by giving us the essence, not necessarily giving us the literal or tangible truth. Uh, so the stork brings babies, right? Of course, a stork doesn't really mean really bring babies, but there is a symbolic essence to the fact that uh, a natural creature brings a gift, a gift of life, to the universe. So I just think that's an interesting meditation there on truth and subjectivity where the essence of something can be more true than the, uh, the nuts and bolts of it. And maybe we reveal those things in time. Yeah. Even Yoda says, you know, it, this is unfortunate. And Luke's like, I finally know the truth. How is that unfortunate? And Yoda goes, well, you weren't ready for the burden right. that you have to still face him. Like, these are all unfortunate circumstances. The reason they, they didn't tell this young boy that his father was a Nazi out there exterminating people with terrible prejudice and, like, horrible ferocity is they were worried he would become like him. Right. They shelled... So, in so many ways, we, we do create these sort of mythic shields around raw reality and we convey these in symbolic terms and not literal terms. So why do we tell the child that a stork brings a baby? Because the child's too young to learn about sex, right? We want to, you know, shield them from this. They'll have a whole life as a sexual person. Let the kid just be a kid. Let's shield them from that. And we'll talk, we, we will tell them the truth, but in symbolic terms. Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, what Obi-Wan does when he tells... Luke that, you know, Vader betrayed and murdered his father, he tells him a symbolic truth because the turn of Anakin to Vader was a betrayal and a death of sorts. And a new person came out and that person was Vader who was twisted and evil. And it's, it's understandable that Luke might react with anger to this and that Luke might access that anger when confronting Vader because he has been lied to in essence you know, he has felt very sheltered and like he hasn't been in control of his own destiny because these older and uh, quote unquote wiser figures have decided uh, what he's going to know and what he's not going to know. But it is remarkable the, uh, the, the fact that Luke emerges from this so well adjusted and is able to uh, sort of incorporate those symbolic truths into his being and leave this with peace. Uh, I think it's it's a testament to him becoming a Jedi because he is able to uh, finally read those symbolic truths as necessary and as uh, protective of him and also realize that he is going to do better in the future. Uh, he is going to be the one to carry the mantle of the Jedi forward to try and reestablish the Jedi Order, and he's learned from the mistakes of his masters. He recognizes that they are in many ways greater than him and they've taught him everything he knows, but he now knows a new truth, which is that you can choose your future and that no one is beyond saving. And in the future, you know, his great student, Ray, is going to learn 
new truths that she's going to take forward. She's going to learn from his mistakes because he will obviously make them. Yep, totally. Um, Just to uh, address one more ritual that we see in this movie that is kind of made in the moment, uh, takes me back to the Ewoks. Uh, There is the wonderful scene of everybody gathered around the campfire uh, and C-3PO telling stories. And he's got sound effects, of course, but he's telling the story of Star Wars as though he's Homer recounting the stories of the Trojan War or Odysseus trying to return home from it. Uh, And that touches, you know, the mythic power of Star Wars, that this thing is this epic adventure, but here we are on the ground talking about it, and we're the ones who did it. Uh, and it, uh, it, it, it looks at this tradition that we all have together, this ritual that we all share, which is storytelling. It's why we have this podcast, because as long as we've had language, as long as human beings have had language, they've told stories. They've tried to make sense of their world by telling stories. And it's something that brings communities together and that helps people become communities. And right after C-3PO finishes this story, uh, he hears something from the Ewoks and then says, all right, we're now all part of the tribe. (laughs) They've been initiated by this process of communally sharing stories together. Uh, So that's just a a wonderful and heartwarming moment for me in this movie. Yeah, it it is a really great moment. And, you know, it... It, it gives all of these characters, right before the battle, a sense of peace and calm. It gives Luke the, the moment that he needs to talk to Leia and tell Leia that, you know, you're actually my sister. They have that touching scene where he's like, I have no memory of my mother. Can you tell me about your mother? And so much of uh, Star Wars is about confronting one's father. The father figure looms largest in the narrative. And here we have this touching moment where Luke tries to remember his mother in hopes that Leia might tell him something about her. And I think that's really touching as well. And, you know, you're you're 100% right. The power of telling a story, and once a story is out there, what it can do and how it can grow, and how it can shape and change the world, how it can inspire people to do great and terrible things alike, is amazing. And the only way our heroes can become part of the tribe is if the tribe knows their story. And who better than C-3PO? Who's fluent in more than six million forms of communication. Who also says in the first movie, I'm not much of a storyteller. Bullshit. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a great call out. <laughs> he says it in the first one when Luke's trying to ask about the rebellion. He's like, I'm not much of a storyteller to be truthful. Yeah. And just another, just I wonder at at any point in that, does he tell the Ewoks that he's not a god? Oh, that's a good uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, or does he just continue to work that advantage? <laughs> well, I mean, it is against his uh, programming to impersonate a deity. That's true. Yeah, which is fantastic. Well, you got anything else? Oh, man, there's so much in this movie that I I love, but to gush over. But I, I think I've hit the main beats of that I extrapolated from the symbolic language. Um, is there anything else you want to address? Um, I think we should probably touch on the emperor a little bit. Um, he obviously is sort of a figure that kind of looms over this story in the, the last two movies and who gets much more fleshed out in the prequel trilogy. But as this uh, sort of unseen puppet master who comes into flesh in this movie, I think he's an interesting figure. Uh, it adds some depth to Darth Vader, who is uh, not just a, a lightsaber-wielding villain, but a servant. Uh, and so we get to see this dimension of Vader as um, as betrayer of that ultimate master. Um, I yeah, know. I think the Emperor, my read on him, especially from the symbolic language, is he's Zeus, right? He built an entire society just to venerate and worship him. He lives in the clouds, you know, in this on these spaceships, in this space station. He is uh, vindictive and spiteful and greedy. And at the end of the movie, what does he do? He shoots lightning from his hands. Yeah. He's very much a representation of, a, I think, a cruel ancient pagan god. 
is how I read him. And him there now with Luke is he's trying to initiate this hero to venerate and worship him and then go out and do his works in the galaxy. And he sees the power. So he, to the emperor, he sees himself as all powerful and mighty and just. And the way that he exercises control is through force, like an ancient mean God. And what we see, you know, with Luke is Luke has to overcome this. It still goes back, man. There's so much Freud in this. Yeah. It still comes back to that Oedipal complex. Here is the personification of the angry deity, the angry father, and Luke having to overcome that so that he can live a life of peace and prosperity. Yeah. Well, and then there's the manipulation of emotions. This is where we see it uh, come to fruition. They've warned Luke against anger and fear and hatred, but uh, the emperor is here egging Luke on, saying, give in to your feelings. Uh, This contrasts with earlier Obi-Wan's force ghost telling Luke uh, that your feelings do you credit, but they can be made to serve the emperor. So this is another moment where Luke has to strike a balance between okay, I have to save my sister and my friends whom I love, um, but that anger can be used to you know, channel the dark side and fight my father. So he has to, to find a way to access love, access forgiveness, uh, instead of the easier emotions, the more seductive emotions like anger and hate and fear. And well, yeah, so Obi-Wan tells him to bury his feelings deep down. Yeah. He's like, push all of your feelings into your subconscious and and ignore them because they're going to be easily manipulated. But it is his feelings of love for his father that ultimately carry him through this um, story and into a Jedi. So again, we see Obi-Wan, well-intended, but giving, I think, rather shit advice. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think you need to trust your feelings You know, I I think we spend way too much time trying to repress how we feel when we should allow ourselves to feel the way we need to feel. It's okay for a Jedi. A Jedi can't never feel anger. That's fucking impossible. Right. That's crazy. That's insane. If you you keep that shit buried. You become Darth Vader. That makes you Darth Vader. That's exactly what makes you Darth Vader is that you try to repress and bury your emotions till they fester in you and then they get unchained and you become an agent of evil. Absolutely. I think it's an Obi-Wan means well, and he knows the difficult challenge that Luke is going to face when he confronts Vader and the emperor and Yoda warns him of it too, but it's precisely his feelings that he needs to access in order to pass the gulf and become a Jedi. He can't, you can't do anything great in the world if you're going to, you know, be repressed that will eventually come up and bite you in the ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else you got? Um, I think we've hit all the points that I wanted to discuss. Uh, just again, like I, I love this movie. I love Star Wars. Um, this has been super, super fun to go back through the original trilogy with a keen and critical eye and see what new uh, insights we can take away from it. Uh, I hope that we have added something to your understanding of Star Wars or enriched it in some way, or at least that you have enjoyed uh, going through the original trilogy with us. Uh, this is has been in- immensely rewarding, and I cannot freaking wait for The Rise of Skywalker to come out on Thursday. Absolutely. And until next time, guys, may the Force be with you and be kind. Be kind. <laughs>